The Tennis Gambling Podcast and the Sports Gambling Podcast in is presented by WinBet. WinBet is now live in Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, and Virginia. From boosted same-game parlays to live in-game odds, WinBet has what you need to win. Sign up today and bet $100 to get an extra $100 at sportsgampodcast.com slash winbet, thesportsgampodcast.com slash W-I-N-N-B-E-T. State restrictions apply. We're also brought to you by the SGPN Merch Store. Head over to store.sportsgampodcast.com and use the promo code MADNESS for 10% off orders of $40 or more. And welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast from the Sports Gambling Podcast Network. It is currently Friday, March 10th, and I'm your host, as always, Scott Reichel, once again going solo for this pod. And it is time to go through the Friday and Saturday matches in Indian Wells. I was kind of curious how I was going to go about the formatting for the episodes midweek because... Uh, first of all, it's pretty interesting looking at a tournament like this and trying to cover it the same way you'd cover a Grand Slam. And I do think that it's going to be a little bit too difficult to cover all the matches that are going to be taking place over the next two days. So I'll probably do what I did in the Australian Open or try to mimic it to some degree where I will end up previewing some matches. And then, of course, I'll do the lock and dog picks at the end. But the matches I'm going to pick are going to be mostly random, just matches that kind of caught my eye. I think might be intriguing, either from a betting perspective or just from an actual fan perspective in matches that should be very competitive. But before I get into any of the thoughts for the Friday and Saturday matches in the round of 64 preview, do want to recap how we did on the last podcast. We did great. Uh, we ended up sweeping the board. We had a nice easy winner with Jordan Thompson money line at minus 145 as he beat Monfee in straight sets. And then we ended up having the over two and a half sets in the matchup between Wolf and Fuksovics. Very weird match where it was 6-1-0-6. So it was a complete reversal between set one and set two, but that ended up cashing as well at plus 140. So I ended up sweeping the podcast. Been a good run for us lately. And on top of that, we also had some players with some quarter outrights who are still alive. Now, do I think Murray's going to actually win the quarter? No. But we got him at 11-1, to 1, and he had a war against Echeverry, but he pulled through, survived in advance. So overall, none of our picks, whether it was future-related or picks-related in terms of the lock and dog segment, lost, which is the best-case scenario for the first round, and hopefully we'll keep it rolling in the round of 64. But I do want to at least discuss quickly some of my main takeaways from the Wednesday and Thursday matches, and then I'm going to transition over into some matches that I like for Friday and Saturday. So starting off with my first takeaway, the court speed at Indian Wells. I was relying on some type of speed tracker on the internet, which told you the general category of speed from each individual big ATP tennis tournaments, whether it involved the Grand Slams, the Masters of Thousands, the 500 events. And it said that Acapulco, for example, was slower than... Indian Wells. And from what I gathered in the first couple of days, I disagree with that assessment. I thought that the court speed at Indian Wells was very slow, which is why you saw a lot of big ace guys really struggle with their serves. Isner got, uh, ended up struggling against Nakashima. He also can't move, which doesn't help, but Isner definitely had to fight off a lot of break points compared to what he normally has to fight off against in hard courts. He also had to keep an eye on Shelton, who I gave out on YouTube uh, to beat Fognini in straight sets. That was another winner there. But the point is, Shelton's serving didn't exactly look dominant either. Fognini got a lot of serves in play, and I believe Shelton 
only won about what was it, like 61% of his first surf points, I think, give or take. I'm just pulling up the exact number right here. So the point is a lot of these big servers have really not played that well or served that dominantly early on, and I am a bit concerned by it. So Shelton won 65% of his first serve points, which is pretty low for a guy who serves pretty big. Shelton only had five aces, and Fagnini can't really move. I know that Shelton was using a lot of kick serves and you're trying to use a lot of variety, but the point is I have noticed that the ace counts for players have really not been great. You have an exception, though. Gojo and his loss to... Gasquet had about 20 aces or so, but Isner in that Nakashima match, just for reference, had 14, which is fine, I guess. Isner, you know, we're used to probably seeing north of 20 in a two-set match, but Isner ended up struggling for the most part. He had to fight off six break points, only ended up saving five of them. But the point I'm trying to say is that a lot of big servers did have issues in the first round, and I am wondering if that's going to continue moving forward. So maybe this tournament is going to benefit ralliers more than I expected. I still kind of picked ralliers anyway, uh, just because I thought that they were the best value on the board with the likes of Medvedev, and I even gave a little thought about Nori, which I put a little sprinkle on. Sinner is kind of a balance of both. I think my Hercaz pick is probably not going to work out at 40 to 1, but it's 40 to 1 for a fringe top 10 guy. So that was more of a long shot play. But the point is, I do think at the end of the day, you will see ralliers have a lot of success in this event based on how slow the core conditions were on Wednesday and Thursday. And that was my overall takeaway from the event, regardless of which match. It just felt like that was the common theme I was noticing when I was actually watching the matches taking place. But to go through some of the actual player breakdowns, Starting off with Wednesday, my initial takeaway, I mentioned Isner before, he can't move. Uh, just simply put, it's kind of the end stages like a Karlovich. Isner was always a little bit more well-rounded than Karlovich, but Isner doesn't have any movement at all at this stage in his career. You can argue that it doesn't matter. He still made the final in Dallas, had a couple of match points in that breaker against Yibbing, but it's not good at this stage in his career. Isner might be a borderline, I don't want to say auto-fade, but... I'm not sure how he's supposed to break anybody when he cannot move laterally to save his life. And the unforced error count's still there. I'm definitely concerned with Isner, and I think he's on his last legs as a seriously competitive player in the ATP Tour. I wouldn't be surprised if he finishes outside the top 50 and potentially the top 100 after next year or so. I, I think it's going to be just a full-on implosion or a, a steep decline for Isner moving forward. Uh, that was one takeaway, but I kind of already knew that. I just was reaffirmed all my thoughts when he got killed by Nakashima. And Nakashima wasn't exactly playing good tennis in 2023, which is concerning. Besides that, uh, Yibbing played his first matches since that Dallas final against Isner. Struggled a bit early, ended up going down a set to Munar came back and he ended up winning the final two sets, including a third set tiebreak. I thought Yibbing was good. Munar played well for a guy that's kind of a clay specialist. Munar keeps the ball in play. He was going to force Yibbing to actually hit it past him. And as a result, you had a marathon match on your hands. Yibbing, though, it's, it was his first match in about a month. So I'm not going to overreact to him having a bit of a rough time in his first match. He got the job done. He even threw in a, a bagel in the second set. But I'm not going to really view it as a negative. I'm going to view it as a positive. It was his first match since February 10th, and he ended up advancing. So good for Yibbing. I still think he's a future top 25 guy, top 50 minimum, and we'll see how he does in the next round. Besides that, though, uh, 
Schwartzman, shout out to him. I've been roasting him for a while, but he looked really good. And some of it has to do with Coria being a clay court specialist and being atrocious on hard court. But Schwartzman won 6-1-6-2, so good for him. Maybe he found something in that Jari match, and I don't think he's in full auto-fade territory. Now, he does face Rude in the next round, which should be interesting because Rude is obviously a top-10 guy, but he's not been good in 2023. And I do think that it could be an issue uh, for... Potentially rude because I don't know what to think of both players right now. So that's a match I'm going to stay away from, but I'm kind of going to view from a distance and kind of scout in a way to see if Schwartzman's struggles were mostly clay related or maybe if he found his found something or maybe just the fact that rude is still slumping and I can't go near him with a 10 foot pole at this point. So we'll see how that plays out in the round of 64. Besides that, my other takeaway was from the actual lock that we had when we had Thompson to win. We faded Munphy. And the main argument was he had not played tennis in seven months. He battled a heel injury, then a serious leg injury. He also became a dad. Congratulations to him on that. But the point is he's had a lot of distractions and setbacks uh, with the injuries. And I was skeptical on how he would look, especially for a guy who was uber-athletic, arguably the most athletic player on tour. You can argue Nadal, but you get my point. The point is Monfi in his prime was one of the most athletic tennis players of all time, and I was worried with the leg injury how compromised the movement would be. It was really bad. I, I think Monfi looked like he was at 30% movement, give or take. It was a train wreck for Monfi. And, of course, it was good for us in our bankroll in the short term. And it's, it's a bit sad when Monfi's been an entertainer, one of the most entertaining players on tour for over a decade, and you're looking at him, at him being a shell of his former self, but he only landed 57% of his first serves. He won 58% of his first serve points. He won 40% of his second serve points. He just wasn't good. There's really no way around it. He only, uh, yeah, he won 27% of his first serve, uh, first serve uh, return points. He only won 20% of his second serve return points. Manfi looked like a guy who had not played in seven months. Now, you could argue... You know, the first match, he's going to progress. He'll get better as time goes on. Maybe. Am I not going to fade him in the short term? Absolutely not. I'm going to fade him every match he plays because I thought that he looked atrocious. And I do think that that's going to be the new fade that we've kind of pivoted from. It was Schwartzman, and we gave it a hell of a run before Jari burned us there. We didn't even give out that podcast, that pick in a podcast, actually. I gave that out on in the Discord for SGPN. But I had a personal play on it that was relatively large, and Jari ended up screwing me. And then to top it all off, he won the tournament anyway. But the point is, Schwartzman, I think I'm going to pass on fading him now. Uh, I'm just going to wait and see how Schwartzman looks against Rude, and maybe we'll go from there. Monfi's going to be an auto-fit. It was, it was sad to watch that happen. Monfi wasn't close. He couldn't move. The strokes had no power on them. The serve was atrocious. It looked bad. I, I, I'm curious what the line's going to be for Monfi moving forward. Because Thompson, we got a 145 bargain. And then the line closed to like 170. So Thompson did take an avalanche of money coming in. Probably sharp money leading up to the match. I don't even know where you price Monfi at this point. I'm not sure where he's going to play. There were rumors that he was going to play in Lyon in the future, so keep an eye on that. But Monfi's got to be an auto-fade. That was my main gambling takeaway from Wednesday. I have to fade this guy all the time because he's going to potentially get priced like he's Gail Monfi, former top 20 player in the world. There's going to be a little bit of automatic 
a rehab or you know injury recognition built in. So the lines might be a little bit uh, more expensive for Monfi's opponents, but I don't even care. Monfi looked like he was a borderline challenger-level player in that first match, and I'm sure he'll get better at some point you know, with all the practice reps and all of the matches he might play in. But against ATP-level competition, it's going to be rough. That's all I'm going to say. And speaking of rough, I mean, I thought the same exact situation as Dominic Team, who choked away a 6-4-4-1 lead against Manorino on Thursday. But it's the same idea where you're looking at a guy who was close to the top of the sport. Team won a Grand Slam event. Monfi never did that. But you're looking at a guy who was a serious threat on any given day. And you see them after all the injuries, like a Warenka or like a Murray. Murray's still more competitive than the other guys. But the point is the group that I mentioned... They're guys who a lot of people are hoping can revive the glory days and to try to remain a ser- just remain competitive. And I feel like most gamblers might bet on them because they think that it might be a value spot. Because if this happens and if player A moves better and if he finds something, then maybe it's good value. It's not good value. If you're blindly fading the players who used to be really good that have been in the middle or past a serious rehab period, most of the time it's not good. You have exceptions, of course. You have Nadal, who's battled a bunch of leg injuries in his career, who's one of the greatest players of all time. Djokovic has had some injuries in the past. Federer's had some injuries in the past. Those are the three greatest players in the history of the sport. Like, I'm not including those guys, but you're going around thinking of all of the players who have been able to overcome serious, and I mean serious injuries, like months off the shelf serious injuries. Most guys can't do it. And you're seeing that with team. You're seeing it with Warenka. I think Monfi is going to be another guy to add to that group. I got to fade him because if his movement is going to be severely compromised, I didn't even mention Fognini. Fognini is not really injury-based, but it's mostly just based on him being old. But he has had a couple of foot injuries over the last couple of months. And we saw him lose to Shelton, and I gave out Shelton in straight sets on YouTube. Same idea, just guys past their prime, part of the old guard, so to speak. And I'll keep fading them because... I just don't think that they're competitive anymore, at least compared to where they used to be and where the public perception still perceives them. So either way, that was my main takeaway for the Wednesday matches. Might sound a bit harsh on Monfi, but I'm a realist, and I'm telling you right now, Monfi looked horrible, and I do think that he's going to have a lot of value fading in the immediate future. Maybe he'll look like team, and he won't win an actual ATP match for months, and then maybe he'll break through once, or we'll see what happens, but I'm going to keep fading him moving forward. Keep an eye on that. I'll probably end up fading him, taking opponents in straight sets for future locks. So, spoiler alert for future tournaments. If I see Monfi playing and the line's not ridiculous, I'm going to fade him. Just keep that in mind. Besides that, though, Bublik lost in straight sets to uh, Wu, Bublik doing Bublik things, low IQ emotional player, and he lost in straight sets. So that's going to wrap it up for Wednesday's recap. Thursday's recap, uh, Draper looked really good. I was skeptical on how he would look coming back from a leg injury that he suffered in the Australian Open. I was on VEASAN yesterday, actually, on Greg Peterson's show, and I gave out a couple of tennis plays. I believe I split the plays that I gave out there. I ended up resharing the Wolf over two and a half sets, and I also gave out Shelton in straight sets. I did lose on Gojo, who I thought would win, but that was competitive. That went to three, and I lost on Reddy, who I actually didn't mind, plus the two and a half games, and Reddy got smacked. Draper looked fantastic. It was a principal play. I'm going to fade guys who have not played in several months, and Draper looked really good. So keep an eye on that. That was one takeaway that I had. 
sometimes you got to sacrifice some money in order to actually learn something for future uh, just reference. And I learned something. I learned Draper doesn't believe in layoffs, and he looked fantastic. So besides that, Waranka won. Good for him. He got taken to three sets by Vukic. Doesn't mean much to me, uh, but good win for him. Shelton won in straight sets. Doesn't mean anything because Fagnini is just a shell of his former self. He can't move and he can't serve. So I'll keep fading him on hard courts. He is really, really on his last leg. I think he will become a full-time doubles player at some point just because him and Bolelli have actually been a good doubles team for a while. So just keep that in mind. Besides that, Murray won a marathon. What else is new? Murray only wins three-set matches. He just cannot win in straight sets to save his life. But that match against Echeverry was very good. Besides that, nothing more to add. I already mentioned team who blew a 6-4, 4-1 lead. I think he's a challenger level level player. And I think that's his ceiling at this point. He's just not capable of winning consistently on the ATP level. And I know he's going to get wild cards everywhere because he has won a bunch of these events in his prime. He won the U.S. Open, so that's going to definitely help out the actual cachet and how famous he is and how well-known he is. So tournaments will keep inviting him because he has a following. It is depressing to to root for team. And I'm a team fan. It sucks. But I got to be honest. You're going through his results for the last two years. They're horrible on the ATP level. In challenger events, he made the final in a hardcore event uh, a year or so ago, and he lost to Umber in the final. But that's the closest of a final he's ever going to get to at this point. Team is just not the guy that's going to make deep runs in pretty much anything in ATP level anymore. And I think he's going to have to transition to challengers at some point. If he even wants to, he might retire because he's tasted uh, victory at the highest level. He's been to the top of the mountain, and now he's at the way bottom. And it's tough to climb Kilimanjaro twice. So I think that team could potentially be on his way out. I'm reading into it a bit much. No actual evidence supporting that. Besides some cryptic comments he's made in interviews talking about how he's focused on some other stuff besides tennis. And he kind of alluded to the fact that tennis isn't the only priority in his life, which I think is a bit concerning if you are a team fan hoping he continues to play. But at the ATP level, he just can't cut it. And I'm aware that match breakdown could have gone a lot differently if he continued his level for another 20 minutes because he was up once again 6-4-4-1 but we've seen team lose all the time in the last two years and it's another example of people waiting for team to come around maybe he wins a first round match and people get excited and then he loses immediately after we're back to where we started i don't have any actual optimism with team and i think that he's gonna have to go to challengers at some point because he just, he's just going to keep losing at the ATP level. It is what it is. The forehand's not where it is because of the wrist injury, and that's the main issue that he's dealing with. And he also hasn't changed his play style whatsoever ever since he suffered the injury, and he's physically incapable of playing the same style that he used to. But anyway, uh, that's going to wrap it up for my thoughts on uh, Thursday's matches. Didn't really have anything else. Thought most of the matches went the way that I thought they would, with the exception of the ones that I mentioned. Uh, I didn't talk about Kokonakis, but... I did in the tournament preview. I said that I didn't want to take Alcaraz because I thought that with him rushing back from a hamstring injury, maybe he'll be vulnerable. And I saw the matchup against Kokonakis in the round of 64, and I thought that maybe that could be an interesting match. Kokonakis looked really good. Now, Holt is an American player who is a fringe challenger-qualifying guy in the ATP. I know he had a nice win over Fritz in a Grand Slam event last year, but... The point is Holt is really just a 
mediocre player who'd probably dominate in challengers, but he's not good enough to actually be competitive in the ATP level, in my opinion. So I don't know if I can read much into it, but Kokonakis has looked really good. And if Alcaraz looks compromised, I think Kokonakis might be live to win that match. But I've stalled along enough. I am going to get into the matches for uh, Friday and Saturday. Once again, not sure how I'm going to go about this. Whatever matches kind of catch my eye, I'll briefly talk about. So starting off with the uh, Schwartzman versus Rude match, I kind of just mentioned how I wasn't going to fully bet on it, and I won't. But I will break it down because Rude is still a top five guy. Schwartzman is a player we've talked about constantly, mostly for negative reasons on this podcast. But I do think that this line is pretty interesting. Root is a favorite of about four games. Schwartzman's plus four. It's around minus 110 apiece on each side. Total's 21, and Root is around minus 300 on the money line. Schwartzman's around plus 250. And if you want to take the three sets, overs two and a uh, three sets is plus 150. Two sets is minus 190. And Schwartzman to win a set is actually minus 130. So Schwartzman is expected to win a set in this match. And once again, he faced off against Korea who is the definition of a clay court specialist, but I think there might be a little bit of value on Schwartzman, mostly because I don't like anything that I've seen from Rude this year, and you're looking at how he's done in 2023 to read off the matches here. He lost to Berrettini in the United Cup, 6-4, 6-4. Lost to Dejir in Auckland in, in three sets. Beat uh, Makic, um, in the first round of the Australian Open, then lost to Brooksby in the second round. Then went to Acapulco, beat and- Andrizi, who is a basically an Italian clay court specialist who's a challenger-level player, and Rude had to go through a three-hour war and to win in a third-set tiebreak. Then he played Taro Daniel, who never had a top-10 win in his career, and he lost that one in a third-set tiebreak. And then he's here. I have no faith in Rude in this match. I think that Rude's the better player when they're on, and we saw Rude make the U.S. Open final, and he even made the ATP finals final, as he ended up losing to Djokovic there. But he just doesn't have it right now. And Schwartzman is adjusted to the Indian Wells courts because he played yesterday. Rude has not played a singles match since uh, the first, where he lost to Tyro Daniel, and he didn't look good in Acapulco either. I think I blindly have to consider taking Schwartzman plus the games here because I don't have any faith in Rude. I think if Rude was in peak form, I could make a case for Rude here, but he's not. So I think I'm going to lean to Schwartzman plus the games here, and I actually don't mind leaning towards an over two and a half sets of plus 150. I don't mind the value, but I do think Rude is a little bit expensive for his current form, and I'm hoping Schwartzman found something, and maybe that could translate into a good showing here on Friday. But moving on uh, to the rest of the Friday card, uh, looking at, I'm going to go out of order here, whatever matches catch my my first. You see Yibbing against Davidovich Fakina, and it's going to be a pretty close match based on odds. Fakina is around minus 120. Yibbing is around even money, and the spread is one. Uh, Fakina's minus one and minus 107. Yibbing is plus one and minus 113. Over-under is 22 flat, and the over two and a half sets is plus 135. They played one time in their careers. However, it was in juniors. They played in the Wimbledon boys back in 2017, and uh, Fakina won, but once again, it's 2017. Who cares? That doesn't mean anything. Uh, but for the sake of this match, I expect it to be a war. Uh, I like the over in this match. I like the over in sets. I think you'll see both players at moments, and I think they're going to kill each other because Fakina is a guy who 
is talented. We know that he is, and he should have beaten Rubla before he choked away that second set breaker. 6-1 in the breaker. That's rough, but still, we know that he's good. The problem is, I think Fakina's actual skills are going to be a bad match for the Indian Wells courts because Fakina is extremely volatile, whether it involves mentally, whether it involves physically, there are a lot of highs and lows with this game, whether it involves shot selection or whether it just involves really just being streaky and having very high moments playing red line tennis and then coming back down to earth and plummeting. He's a very streaky player, and I think it's going to come back to bite him in Indian Wells because of how slow the court's been playing and the fact that Yibbing already has a match under his belt in Indian Wells. And I think this matchup is actually going to be kind of beneficial to Yibbing because he faced off against a rallier, a voluntary rallier in Munar, who hits basically no winners. Now the point should be shorter because Fakini's going to go for a lot more. And I do think that Yibbing can win a bunch of free points with unforced errors by Fakina. Having said that, I do think Fakina is going to showcase his firepower at times, and I think he's good enough to win at least one set, probably maybe both uh, against uh, Yibbing. But you're looking at his results here, and Fakina lost to Rublev in a match he should have won, beat the Jaziri. Jaziri should retire already. Uh, lost to uh, Augur Aliasim, 6 4 7 6, beat Kwan, 6 3 6 2, beat Les Tien, 6 4 6 3. Even took a set off Medvedev in Rotterdam. He's been good. Like, I can't dismiss it, but I have to point out that I do think his skill set isn't a good match for the slow courts of Indian Wells. Plus, you're looking at Yibbing, and each of his last three matches have gone to three sets. So I think that you could end up seeing this turn into a bit of a war, and as a result, I am going to lean to the over in this match. Besides that, uh, looking at... What else am I tempted by here? I think I have to be tempted by the... Uh, what am I going to actually... Uh, uh, what what I want to do for this match here. I think the Cressy-Tabillo match is interesting because I just mentioned how big servers have kind of struggled in this event. Now, the slow courts, I'm, of course it's going to be worse for Cressy because he wants to bomb the serve and chase the, in charge of the net. However, with the slower hard courts, he should be closer to the net by the time the guy actually makes contact or by the time that he actually is able to even try to create a passing shot. So you can argue that Cressy can adapt to the slower hard courts if he ends up kicking it more and he's just able to get to the net faster. I do think at the end of the day, you're going to end up seeing Cressy probably struggle at times in this match. However, he is 2-0 lifetime against Tabilo. Now, they have not played in over two years, so just keep that in mind. Tabilo also went through qualifying, had a couple of marathon matches against O'Connell and against... Uh, another qualifier then ended up beating Martero in straight sets in the final round of qualifying. I think that match should be close. I maybe would lean to the over there. Over two and a half sets is plus 135. I can see both players having moments. But I am curious how a servant volleyer is going to do on the slow, hard courts. You'd assume worse because we saw how good he looked in Montpierre because the courts were insanely fast. But I am wondering if he utilizes the kick serve more. Does the slow courts allow him to potentially get better positioning close to the net? Maybe. We're going to find out. So I am kind of tempted to keep an eye on that match. Not sure if I'm going to bet it, but I definitely think that's going to be somewhat intriguing. Besides that, you have Thompson against Sitsipas. I think Sitsipas should win this match comfortably. Once again, just because I bet Thompson to win against Munfi, and he did, doesn't mean I think Thompson's a good player. I think he's fine, but if you watch this match against, against Munfi... 
he really didn't do much. He just took advantage of a guy who was really, really limited physically, and Thompson beat the crap out of him. Did he look good? Not really, but I thought he, he was good enough to beat up on a guy who looked like he would have struggled in futures events. So Thompson, I don't think, is very good, and I think that Sitsi Paz is the much better player, obviously, and Sitsi Paz has not dropped a set to him in their careers. I think Sitsi Paz probably wins comfortably 6-4, 6-3, something like that, but I'm not going to overrate Thompson because he beat up on a player coming back from a seven-month uh, leg rehab. So I think that Sitsi Paz should win comfortably, and besides that, uh, there are a couple of matches that I do want to talk about uh, later on that night. You have Berrettini and Daniel. I have to pass. Once again, I don't know if Berrettini is actually banged up a little bit or if he was worried about getting double bageled by Rune and he quit. So I'm going to pass because I'm not sure. You may of Nakashima. I'll get into that match later. So I'm going to save that pick. Uh, you got Rublev against Leshika, which I think is a very, very good match. Uh, I think that that could potentially go over. Uh, you're looking at the two head-to-head meetings. Both of them have gone three sets. They faced off in Doha, and Leshika won in three sets. Uh, but I think that match could go the distance. I don't mind the over two and a half sets there, or maybe just an over. I can see both guys having moments. And you have Tiafo against Giron. Uh, Tiafo has done well. He beat him the last two times, beat him in straight sets in the U.S. Open. But I think Giron can make this match competitive. Uh, Tiafo is still a pretty volatile guy. And I think Tiafo should win this match, but I'm not going to expect him to run away with it. So I think I'm going to stay away from that match, but it wouldn't surprise me if Giron gave Tiafo a serious run or if there was a breaker involved in any of those sets. But moving on to the uh, Friday, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, moving on to the Saturday schedule here. Uh, looking at any of the matches, you have Alcaraz against Kokonakis. Alcaraz is roughly a minus 350 favorite, give or take. Kokonakis is around plus 275 the other way. I alluded to it before. I think there will be value in Kokonakis. He looked really good in the first round. He's a good on hard courts, and Alcaraz is rushing back from injury. I think Kokonakis might be pretty alive to win that match, so keep an eye on it. Besides that, I think Draper should be able to dominate against Evans. Evans is also really not at a good year in 2023. I like Evans a lot as a player, and the slice backhand kind of annoys some people. I actually like it, and I think that the slice backhand could play well here, but Draper's younger, and he showed no ill effects from that leg injury. I'll back the younger player who can rally, and I think that he'll be able to wear down Evans over these sets, so I think he's got value. The Fritz-Shelton match is interesting. I, I Once again, I'm going to have to pass because I'm not sure how Fritz is going to look after his health situation or his leg injury attached to it, foot injury in that semifinal in Acapulco. So I got no value on that one. Uh, is there anything else I like? I think I would have to blindly consider leaning to McDonald plus the games against Rune. Rune had the cramping situation in the semis. Maybe it was something more serious than that. McDonald, though, he's American. Is he from California? I think he might be from California. I got, I got, to, I got to confirm that. But the point is, I do think at the end of the day, Rune might be a little bit physically spent. And I mentioned in the preview show, I like the idea of fading a couple of players from Acapulco because of the terrible conditions with the humidity. And I am right. McDonald is from California. He went to college in UCLA. So the tournament's basically in his backyard, and I do think the home crowd should be especially loud for that match. It would not surprise me McDonald gives Rune a run for his money if Rune is physically compromised. So I would lean to McDonald to potentially have a shot to pull off the upset in that one. Uh, you have Murray against Karenia Busta. When in doubt, take the over. 
Murray's the, the three-set magnet. He can't help himself. It's actually the first time they've ever played against each other, which is shocking to me because they've both been around for a long time. Karina Boost has really not been good this year either. He has not played many matches. Really, ever since he won the Masters 1000 event last year, he has not been good. Lost to Quan in Adelaide. He beat Kachin in the first round of the Australian Open. Means nothing. Kachin is not really a good player. Then he lost to Bonzi in three sets, but a two-set lead in that one. But Bonzi's been pretty good this year. And then he lost to Gasquet in the first round of Rotterdam. So he's really done nothing this year. I think Murray's probably got value, but I am wondering about fatigue. But he's so used to going to three sets at this point. When in doubt, give me the over two and a half sets in the Murray match. I don't know how I'm supposed to avoid it. It's basically just a magnet at this point. I just blindly bet, and you've done quite well for yourself. Uh, besides that, you have Sinner taking on Gasquet. Sinner will be a massive favorite. I think Gasquet's going to get his ass kicked. I'm not going to really overthink it. Sinner, assuming he's healthy after Rotterdam, which I think he should be because he purposefully took time off to recover, which I thought was very smart, and I think that's going to bode well for him in this event. But Gasquet beat Gojo. Good for him. Was a bit of a longer match, and Sinner, I just think, is the better player by a wide, wide margin. I think he'll win this match relatively comfortably. Maybe Sinner gets off to a slow start, but I think eventually he'll find his groove. And I think he'll overpower Gasquet over the course of this match. Uh, besides that, don't really have much else. Trying to think if I like anything else. I don't really see much. Maybe the over two and a half sets in that Warenka-Kekmanovic match, but... Once again, I really don't see much. So I think that's going to wrap it up for my breakdowns of the Friday and Saturday matches. Once again, kind of a loose format, but I think this is going to be the format I'm going to use since we have too many matches to cover all of them and too few matches to... Uh, actually, not even just too few matches. No, I, yeah, kind of, kind of too few matches to find a bunch of them that I'm fully tempted by. I think I'm just going to pick and choose like I did in this episode moving forward. I'll probably break out like five or so, maybe three or four per day. And as the tournament gets smaller and smaller in the later rounds, then we can be more inclusive of covering a higher percentage of the matches. But anyway, that's going to wrap it up for the actual match breakdowns. Now it's time to get into the lock and dog segment. Before I should get into that, going to have a quick word from our sponsors. WinBet is the official online sportsbook of the Sports Game Podcast Network. WinBet is active in a bunch of states, and there are a ton of ways to win, including live betting and same-game parlays, a.k.a. WinBet's Build Your Own Bet. March Madness is almost here, and there are plenty of ways to win besides betting on college basketball, because you can bet on the NBA, hockey, and the XFL. If you sign up today, you can receive a special offer, bet $100, and get an extra $100 with the state availability. And of course, for our DGENs only, if you hit the biggest long shot parlay of the week, you get a $1,000 free credit. There's so much to choose from, and all you have to do is head over to sportscampodcast.com slash winbet, the sportscampodcast.com slash W-I-N-N-B-E-T, Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. We're also brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Underdog Fantasy is heating up for March Madness. College Pick'em is a great way to get in on the action, especially if you have a bracket that is busted after day one. Let's be real with each other. We've had a bunch of brackets over the years get busted in day one. It happens. You're not alone, but you can still make money in the college pick them with Underdog Fantasy. Plus, Underdog Fantasy has your favorite college basketball player props. Head over to UnderdogFantasy.com and use the promo code SGPN for a 100% deposit bonus up to $100. That's UnderdogFantasy.com, promo code SGPN. 
Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast. Just finished previewing some of the round of 64 matches in Indian Wells for Friday and Saturday. Now it's time to get into the actual lock and dog picks. Starting off with the lock, I alluded to it before, but I am finally going to get into the match. It is the Nakashima and Medvedev match, which will be taking place on Thursday. And to find the exact time of that match, uh, sorry, on Friday, uh, just to pull up the exact time on that match, taking place on Friday at around 9 p.m. So you have a lot of time to actually get the bet in. But I am going to go with the under in this match, and I see it currently available at 20 and a half games at minus 120. Simply put, Nakashima beat Isner. Congratulations. Doesn't mean anything to me. I didn't think Nakashima looked very good. I just thought that he was able to keep the ball in play, and Isner is cooked at this point physically. So Nakashima made him run around. Isner hit, hit a bunch of unforced errors and couldn't cover the court. But Nakashima really didn't serve well. I thought he looked pretty vulnerable, and Medvedev's looked like arguably the best hardcore player in the world this season. And I think that that's going to bode well for him. He had the bye, which definitely gives him some extra rest after he had to play last Saturday in the final against Rublev. So he's had basically a week off. I think Medvedev dominates here. And I think that Nakashima, even though he's American, so maybe he might get a little bit of crowd support, I think Medvedev is just too good. And the slow courts are going to benefit him as well because Medvedev has a decent serve, but we know him for being a brick wall. Nakashima is going to try to do the same thing, but Medvedev's better at it. Nakashima plays a similar style, but there's more on first er errors attached to it, and he's a worse server. So I think that that combination is going to really hurt him in this match. So give me Medvedev to win pretty easily, but in theory, Nakashima, if he smacks him, will win anyway. But give me the under 20 and a half games at minus 122. I also like it because Medvedev to win in straight sets is minus 230. And you're looking at Medvedev's results here. He really hasn't had that many sets dur during his recent stretch that have gone to 7-5 or 7-6. Medvedev has won the last 15 sets that he's been in. And out of those 15 sets, only two of them have had at least 12 games. In fact, if you want to go through his last five matches, sorry, his last six matches, each of his last six matches, Medvedev has won in straight sets, and his opponent has not won more than four games in a set. Translation, I think Medvedev wins 6-4, 6-3, something along those lines. Give me the under 20 and a half games there at minus 122. And for my dog, I have a lot of options. I would have considered just going blindly back to the over two and a half sets in the Murray match, but I don't see a line on that. So instead, I'm going to go with a match I talked about, which also will be taking place on Friday. It will be the matchup between Yibing and Davidovich Fakina, taking place at around 4.40 p.m. Eastern time, probably 5 o'clock, because I'm sure you might get some matches that go long, and they're going to have to delay this match a little bit. But I will go with the over two and a half sets here at plus 135. I gave my case before, but I think Yibing is kind of an underrated three-set magnet, too. Each of his last three matches went three sets. We know that he's adjusted to the Indian Wells courts because he played against Munar, and that went to three sets. Fakina is extremely talented. He's a lot more talented than Munar is, but the unforced error count is going to get high, and I do think that Fakina is going to be hot and cold like we thought Wolfen uh, and Fuxovics would be in the last podcast. The only difference is we got one player to play like that instead of two, but I do think that Fakina, he's shown the ability to really battle against top-tier guys. Gave Felix a run for his money, gave Rublev a run for his money, but we've seen him blow up constantly, and I think Yibbing's strokes are consistent enough to induce unforced errors from Fakina 
over the course of this match. But I do think Fakina is good enough to win at least one set. So I am going to go with the over two and a half sets in the Davidovich Fakina and and Yibbing match. So once again, the lock and dog picks for the Friday episode are going to be the under. 20 and a half games in the Nakashima Medvedev match as my lock at minus 120. And the dog will be the over two and a half sets in the Fakina and Yibbing match at plus 135. But that's going to wrap it up for this episode. We're back once again, probably on Sunday. And until then, you can find me on Twitter, Rice Show Radio. You can find me on the NBA Gambling Podcast once again on Friday. And that's also on YouTube. Uh, good luck to all of you and all of your bets. Bye, everyone.